tonight we're talking about relationships. Before I say anything about that, let me say another word, if I can, uh, about the Genesis seminar coming up. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, on that. Months and months and months ago, Tim O'Connor, who is the chair of the philosophy department over at IU, and the member here at ECC came to me and said, Dr. John Walton from Wheaton College is on sabbatical, and he might be willing to come here for a seminar. And I was like, no way. That is awesome, because he's a big name. Uh, he's written more than a dozen books. One of the best commentaries on the book of Genesis I've ever read, along with great encyclopedias and dictionaries of the Bible. Now I'm making him sound boring. He's really engaging, and the, the last book he, he has written, called The Lost World of Genesis 1, looks at a lot of ancient Near Eastern documents and their creation stories, and looks at our creation story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and compares that with great, great insights um, into, into the creation story. And Josiah did a great job. What Dr. Walton has concluded is that our understanding of Genesis 1 traditionally has been that that's a story of the material beginnings of everything. And he says, God certainly created everything, but that's not the story that we have in Genesis 1 and 2. The story we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is God ordering everything to serve, his, to serve us as humans and to serve as his cosmic temple. So it's a really interesting and I think very biblical uh, re-examination of that story. And if you're in the sciences or have just wrestled with you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 before, I'd really encourage you to, to take a good hard look at the seminar. There's information there. You can use your phone, take a picture of the QR code, and go right to the website and get more information. Uh, Dr. <coughs> Dr. John Walton has taught at Moody, he's taught at Wheaton, and uh, really involved with a group called the BioLogos Forum. So you can look more into that too. I I'm really glad to be here tonight. Uh, I'm always glad we say that every week. I I'm even more glad tonight because this has been spring break. And for you, that's been a great vacation away from Bloomington. For me, it's been my kids have been home like 24-7, and I've spent a lot of time with my kids and my wife, and I'm glad to get out of the house, to be quite honest. Um, I know, it's a great start to the discussion on relationships, but I'm gonna be nothing but honest, okay? Uh, I kind of feel, I mean, Here's an insight into what spring break looks like for a parent of three elementary junior high kids, right? It means they're home all the time. Uh, they're fighting over who gets the Xbox controller. It means now I have to make breakfast, lunch, and dinner for them, all right? Uh, they don't sleep in, so we don't get any extra sleep in that regard. I mean, my kids are up at seven no matter what. We can keep them up till two in the morning, and they're still up at seven. So. It, and it also means we have to juggle our schedules, my wife and I, because we both work. And so we get frustrated with each other because we're juggling schedules. Our, our wonderful scheduled life turns into chaos, and we're at each other's throats all the time. So that's my spring break. How was yours? <laughs> so I'm glad tonight that I don't have to step in and talk about relationships from kind of my experience. I get that that's next week. And our wives are here, so that'll be wonderful. Um, this week, we're just taking a look at the, the biblical framework for relationships. And I want us to focus on, on really two significant concepts uh, that serve as the, the foundation for this framework. Uh, the first is what I'll call the universal mark that we all bear. And the second is the universal mandate that we are all beholden to. 
Uh, if you have a Bible, great. If not, I'm venturing out and experimenting, and we're going to try PowerPoint tonight. So most of the texts that we're going to look at are, are going to be right on the screen. And we're going to start in Genesis. Um, oh, no, I might need... Sarah, where are you? Can you go back there? My thing's not working. Uh, the universal mark... Uh, it is what I'm calling the first kind of significant foundation here for this biblical framework. Um, and it comes from Genesis chapter 1. There we go. Nice. Can you go to the next? Click it again. There we go. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the, the universal mark that we all bear. The image of God, or the Imago Dei. Uh, I told you about my spring break. Tell me about yours for a minute. Did any of you take any trips to like spectacular, scenic places? You know, beaches, mountains... Philly does not count. <laughs> Where were you? Me? Yeah, you didn't hang it. I was in Denver. Denver. Okay, Mount was still snow in the mountains. Skiing? No. Okay. Okay. So Denver in the mountains. Think of mountains majesty, right? Did anyone go to a beach? Where were you at? We went to Fort, Fort Myers, but we went to Sanibel Island, which is like one of the... That's where I did my honeymoon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see much of the beach. You get mountains, you get, you know, the, the pebbles, the sands, the blue water, the Gulf Coast of Florida. Where else? Anyone else? Not good that man be alone. 
He's created man in his image, but now man's alone. He says, that's not good. So I'm going to create a helper suitable for man, and he creates woman. Uh, part of what it means to be in the image of God is to be a relational being. You know, theologians have, have talked for centuries about how you define the image of God, and there's all kinds of nuances to it. But at its core, I think, the image of God means we are relational beings, meant for relationship not only with God, but with each other. And you see that in those early chapters of Genesis. And I think it has... Oh, it's working now. It's beautiful. It's heaven. It has this image of God that's impressed on us. This universal mark has profound implications for relationships. First, I think we have to remember, I have to remember, that I am created in the image of God. And I am incurably relational. Sometimes I feel burnt out on relationships, and I want some just me time. You know, I want me in a book, or me in a basketball game, or me in the woods. But that's not sustainable. Uh, we're incurably relational. It, it's built into the fabric of our being. It's hardwired into us to be relational. Again, think about it. Adam was in the Garden of Eden, right? No sin had entered the world yet. He had unencumbered access to God. I mean, the way you, get, you read these chapters, he's walking with God in the garden. I mean, his relationship with God is, at this point, perfect. No interruptions to it. And yet, God still said it's not good for him to be alone. He, he needs other people like him to be in a relationship with. He lived in paradise where every need he had was provided for, except the need to be in relationship. And so God creates a helper that is suitable for him. Not good to be alone. Again, I'm not saying if you're an introvert you should never be alone. But you need relationships. God has given us the church to meet that need. And he's given us relationships with friends and with significant others. Relationships are good. I almost feel like I need to say that because the culture around us seems to suggest almost that relationships are just a hindrance. That relationships are something that you could put off or avoid or jump into, jump out of. They're just disposable. You can use them for a while, but you move on. They get in the way of career. They get in the way of advancement. They get in the way of happiness. And sometimes, to be honest, they can. But they're good. They're hardwired into us because we are created in the image of God, and God is a relational God. Did you notice in Genesis 1, there's that language, let us create man in our image? I think that's an early hinting that we have at the doctrine of the Trinity. God is relational. He has forever existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has forever existed in relationship. And when He creates us in His image, He creates us for relationship as well. Relationships are good. And you're created in the image of God. So you are incurably relational. Don't try and escape that. Embrace it. Relationships are good. A, a further implication is that others are also created in the image of God. Uh, 
They're created in that image. They bear that universal mark. And so we must resist the, I think, the temptation, the urge that we have to treat people as means to accomplish our goals or simply as instruments to meet our needs. Uh, we can't allow ourselves to treat people merely as objects to meet our needs. That has uh, implications for every single relationship that you're in. Uh, just give me some examples. What are some of the relational circles that you guys operate in? This shouldn't be hard. Work. Work. Absolutely. I mean, at some point, probably everyone in this room will have employees underneath them. Remember, when you're in that position, to treat them as image bearers. Uh, they're not just <clears throat> tools to accomplish your quotas or your objectives. Uh, they're not just cogs in the machine. Uh, they bear the image of God and they need to be treated with uh, the dignity that God impressed upon them. What other relational circles do you operate in? Family. Yeah, family, right? Y'all have parents, right? It is easy to treat parents as just means to meet your needs. And in the future, quite honestly, the temptation is to use your kids to meet your needs. Your emotional needs, when you get older, your physical needs. Don't. <laughs> treat your parents, treat your kids with the dignity that being image bearers demands. They're not just tools. What, what other relationships? Classmates. Classmates, peers, friends. I mean, it would be so easy, wouldn't it? And I'm sure we've been, all been guilty of this, to be friends with someone because they can help me in finite math. Or because they throw the best parties. Or because they're going to give me a ride home. That's using them as tools. Treat people as though they're image bearers, because they are. In your relationships with your significant others, your, your boyfriends, girlfriends, fiancés, soon-to-be wives, husbands, it's really easy to begin to treat them as though they're there, they exist to meet your needs. Your needs to have a hot dinner, or to have lawn mode, or your physical needs, or, or just your emotional needs. Resist that. You have needs, absolutely. And in a loving relationship, those needs will be met as you strive to serve one another. But reducing someone to just an object to meet your needs truly dehumanizes them. Resist that. That's the universal mark. We all bear this image. We're made in the image of God. But there's a, beyond that, there's a, a universal mandate. The mandate is to love. When Christ was asked, what's the, what's the greatest commandment of all? He summarized it with the word love. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's easier said than done. I mean, that just begs a whole host of questions, doesn't it? Uh, two that I can think of, okay? Who and how? Who qualifies as my neighbor? Who am I commanded to love and how? How am I supposed to love them? Well, the who question was kind of a, an ongoing debate in Jesus' time. 
who qualifies as my neighbor? Who do I actually have to love? Do I have to love Rome, who's my enemy, my conqueror? No. Do I have to love the Samaritans? And the traditional answer had been no. They're not us. They're not neighbor. You don't have to love them. Uh, Jesus kind of turned that on his head in Luke chapter 10 uh, when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? The Samaritan, or I'm sorry, this, this Jew is traveling and he gets waylaid on the side of the road. He's robbed, he's beaten up, he's left for dead. And several people pass by. Several of his brothers, several of his Israelite neighbors, and they do, do nothing to help. But a Samaritan, who is technically his enemy, passes by and extends care. And picks him up, takes him to an inn, bandages him up, pays for his stay at the inn until he's recovered. And Jesus says, who acted like the neighbor there? And the obvious answer is the Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Uh, love isn't restricted to those who are like you, or to those who are in your, no, your, your close sh- social network. The command to love the neighbor really is a command to love everyone, as God loves everyone. So that's the who. I mean, it doesn't get much broader than that, right? I mean, love your enemies. Love everyone. But how? How am I to love? Uh, The Samaritan story, the Good Samaritan story, points us in one direction. Uh, I'm sure those who passed him by said, oh, we love him. But they did nothing to help. Or they could have justified in their mind. We love them, but they did nothing to help. Love is, according to Jesus and John, lived out love. Here's a great passage from 1 John. In 1 John, the apostle says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the, the love that we're supposed to show is a, is a lived out, practical kind of love. If you see your brother in need, he doesn't have a cloak, a coat, a winter coat, give it to him. If he's hungry, don't say, I love you. God be with you. Bye-bye. You feed them. If you see a brother or sister who's lonely and in need of relationship, love means you step in and you befriend them. Love is lived out. But it would be easy to latch onto that and say, okay, so love means you just do loving things. And that's part of love. But I think the Bible pushes us beyond that. We're not called to just do loving things, but to have affections for people, uh, to have feelings for people. Think about it in the context of loving God. Uh, Loving God certainly doesn't mean we just do loving things for God, right? Loving God must mean more than that. It has to mean that we have affections for God, that, that our hearts are stirred by God, that we long to be you know, with God. There, there's affection elements in that. And I think there ought to be affection in our love for people as well. 
The Apostle Paul points us in that direction in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is, is known as the love chapter. Um, and it's often used at weddings. It's really not about marriage at all. It's about love within the context of the church. But look at what the Apostle Paul says. Now, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What I really find interesting is the, the last verse that's on the screen here, verse 3. If I give away all I have, and I think what Paul is saying there is if I, if I give it all away in service to the poor, and if I surrender my body even to the flames, but don't have love, it's nothing. He's pointing beyond just the loving actions to the attitudes behind them. I mean, Think about a marriage for a minute. It would be very possible, right, to live in a marriage where people do loving things, servant-like things for the other, but they have no affections. That's not the goal, right? I mean, if you're in a position where you don't have affections for the person you're married to, I don't think anyone on staff would hear say, well, that's okay. You're doing loving things for them. We'd say... Keep doing the loving things and pray that God warms your heart for the other. Pray that God stirs affections in you for the other. I know that was marriage. I think the same thing applies to all of our relationships, to a different degree, of course. We ought to love our neighbor, do loving things for them, and have God's heart for them. God loves them with affections. And we ought to also. Again, I think this has some pretty kind of practical uh, implications uh, for how we, we go about loving. But quite simply, love doesn't mean approval. Uh, I love my kids. Love them deeply. I would not approve of them smoking crystal meth, right? Because I love them, I won't approve of some of their actions. Some of their actions could be harmful to them. In the short run, in the long run, some of them could just be wrong and affect their great good, which is their relationship with God. So because I love, I'll disapprove at times. That Paul, who wrote that 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, that follows up on some chapters that are really harsh love. Where he's called out the Corinthian believers and said, I can't believe you're tolerating this kind of sin in your midst. Out of love for the sinful person, put them out of the fellowship so they'll understand the serious consequences of their sin and be restored. Because we love them, we don't approve of it, uh, of the, the sin that they're in. It doesn't mean approval. It, it also doesn't mean that we're required to love everyone in absolutely the same way. Right? We're called to love everyone. But it doesn't mean that we love everyone in absolutely the same way. 
Bob and I say it all the time. We love y'all. Josiah says it all the time. We love y'all. But we love the people in this church. I hope this isn't news to you. I love my kids more. Right? I love my kids differently than I love you. I love Bob. I love Josiah. I love my brother differently than I love them. It's okay. Even Jesus loved his disciples. But there's one disciple that was called the beloved disciple. He had a special spot in Christ's heart. Why? We're not given any clue. Just because we're called to love people doesn't mean we love everyone the same way. I love my mom. I love my wife. I do not love them in the same way. <laughs> creepy beyond creepy, right? <laughs> to say that we're called to love doesn't mean that love is in the same degree. That love is expressed in the same ways. For example, just because you love someone doesn't mean it must be expressed Sexually, there is only one relationship where love should culminate in sexual expression, and that's marriage. So if, if you're dating, it's fine to say, I love you, and to you know, allow that love to grow. But just because you love one another doesn't give you the license to express that sexually. That is meant for the specific relationship of marriage. And one of the things that's growing tiresome to me is the way that evangelicals in our culture are portrayed as anti-love because we beat this drum. That not all love should be expressed sexually. It is absolutely appropriate for people to love one another. It is only appropriate for husband and wife to engage in expressing that love in sexual union. Love doesn't mean that we show love in exactly the same way to everybody. Everyone is an image bearer. Everyone ought to be respected, treated as an image bearer. And everyone falls under that universal mandate to love and to be loved. But we take care on how we express that love. I'm looking forward to next week when we get our wives up here and correct all that we ever say wrong. Because that's what they are really good at. Um, at least mine. Uh, so I'm going to stop here. I think those are the two incredibly important legs of a biblical framework for relationship. The image of God and this mandate to love one another. And we're going to ask Josiah and Bob to come up and See if we can answer some other questions. If not, we have a few questions. Feel free to keep texting them in. Something I appreciated, I really like your two main points. And I think that sometimes a lot of people get really amped up about main points that aren't necessarily like scripturally derived. Like, you cannot kiss until you're married. Like, you can't tell anyone you love them until you're married. And, like, if you're a Christian, you don't believe in dating. You believe in courtship. And, like, you know, scripture, scripture has a lot to say. But I think that oftentimes people like to say scripture says a whole lot more than it actually does. 
And so I think as followers of Christ... I amen in church right now. Amen! <laughs> but uh, I think that as believers, um, within the guidelines of Scripture, we have a lot of freedom as followers of Christ. And that is something that doesn't get mentioned nearly enough. So here's the first question. <laughs> How do you best suggest you deal with having affections for someone when you don't know where they stand or they don't feel the same way? I already talked to Pops on the I don't even know what you're talking about. No, I mean, I, it, <laughs> no, I, it, it, this is one of those questions. I've never experienced that. I've never, yeah. <laughs> I've never had an unrequited love. <laughs> <laughs> this is. A, <laughs> Alex would be really. uh, yeah, um, the, the, my question really is like, I wish it was like somebody was asking me this one on one so I could ask them a little bit more about what they meant when they asked that question. So if you if you ask a question, you want to do that, you want to put yourself out there, that's good. If not, I'm going to ask Josiah to read it again so I can see if I can get my head around it. How do you best suggest you deal with having affections for someone when it may not necessarily be reciprocated? Oh, okay. So somebody really likes you, and you're not sure you do. Am I, am I getting close? And you don't know. Yeah, and you don't know how to respond. Yeah, interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that everybody has the right to my affection. Right. Everybody has the right. You know, in a Christian framework, uh, if they understand me to be a Christ follower, everybody has a right to expect me to be kind, compassionate, and loving. But they don't have a right to expect my affection. And quite frankly, there are certain people I have a lot of affection for, and certain people I don't. And if somebody demands that affection of me, they're demanding something that is not theirs to demand. They're demanding something of me. This is going to sound really selfish. Dan, you can correct me. That's mine. Right? It's mine. Um, it might have been true. I don't know. It might have been true that there were certain disciples. Um, let me just pick on the bad boy, Judas, who really didn't like it that Jesus happened to like John the best. Because it seems like that's the way it was. So it's possible that Judas could have demanded more affection from Jesus than Jesus was willing to give. It does seem like John had a special place in Jesus' heart. And like Dan said, we don't know why. But it would not have been proper for the other disciples to expect that Jesus should love them exactly the same way. Because that's something that, that Jesus holds. Just like it's something that I hold. So... If, if you're one of those people that um, a lot of people are attracted to, right? And um, they're constantly wanting you to be in relationship with them in a deep kind of way. you got to figure out which ones you're going to say yes to. I guess that's my answer. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, and if, if Go ahead. She's on the other foot. And yes, okay. You're attracted or have affections for someone and it's not reciprocated. The answer is you can't demand that of them. You can't demand that they have a special kind of love for you that they don't have for other people. 
I think we're using the word affection, I think, slightly differently. When I said that, you know, we, we ought to have affections for everybody, what I mean is we ought to have the same feelings towards them that God does. Uh, you know, God has care. He cares for everyone. It's not just that he does loving things for people. He, he generally cares and, and grieves when they're, when they're grieving and you know, can celebrate when they're celebrating. So there's that kind of, maybe it's more empathy than I was describing when I said affection. But yeah, I agree with Bob. You can't demand that people love you in a certain way. Can we demand that they respect us? Yeah, I think you can demand that. If they treat us with kindness? Yeah, I think you, you can demand that. But you can't demand a special affection from someone. Although I will add a footnote to that. My wife can demand that I have absolute, complete affection for her. Because I'm in a relationship with her where I ought to be giving everything of myself to her. My daughter and my son have an expectation concerning what I ought to be as a father. And it's appropriate for them to have that expectation. Right? Because that's the defined relationship. But I can't be that to everybody, and you can't be that to everybody. And you can't allow people to demand of you what kind of affection you're going to give them. Because that's, that's you. You decide that. Here's a fun question. <laughs> the Bible warns us against sexual immorality. How do we uh, guard against that in our relationships? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I think you can guard against sexual immorality. I don't think you can guard against sexual temptation. I mean, sexual temptation is just everywhere you turn. I don't know how you can guard against that. Um, but you can take steps to, to make sure, and part of it is making sure that you're in agreement with the significant other that you're in, that, hey, sexuality is reserved for, or sex is reserved for, for marriage. And we need to guard that. Um, I'm not of the, the cloth that says you can't kiss before you're married or can't hold hands until you're married, things like that. Um, but you do need to set, I think, clear parameters. Uh, I don't have a lot of wisdom. <laughs> I'm not dating anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just said something I wanted to... What did you say at the beginning? I wanted to play off of it. I'm old, man. I forget <laughs> Said something about relationships and. There's <laughs> <laughs> a question. I'll say something. I'm a little more fresh from the game than you are. <laughs> I think something that may be helpful to think about is is what I'm doing right now, respectful to the person that I really love, and respecting um, our vision together as having a relationship under Christ. Um, and when it comes down to it, really honoring someone um, with the way that you treat them and also keeping in perspective the greater vision of what is the intention of um, a sexual relationship in marriage. And uh, here's something helpful to think about. If, uh, if I'm really loving my wife and uh, we weren't married yet, would I want to do anything with her that if my father-in-law was to walk into the room while it was going on, I would crap my pants? <laughs> if you're doing something <laughs> that, uh, that you would be overwhelmed with regret if someone that you really cared about and respected caught you doing it, I think it's probably not the most respectful thing to be doing with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And uh, maybe that sounds really legalistic, but I, I mean, I do think that I wouldn't say it if I didn't think it was true. 
Depends on who your father-in-law is, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a guy. If you have or somebody like that, it wouldn't matter, right? So, but yeah, you're, you're quite right. I know what it was. I know what you meant. I know what it was. I was going to say uh, it was sort of a corrective to Dan because I know he meant this. When when Dan said, uh, "I don't think you can guard against temptation," he didn't mean you can't set up certain parameters for yourself so you don't walk into temptation. He was essentially saying temptation is going to come. That's a fact. Get over it, right? You, you, can't, you can't say that I'm going to get to the place that I'm never tempted. There's only one time that will happen. It's when you don't have a pulse, okay? That's, that's when it will stop. Uh, but before that, it's not going to stop. There's a lot of things you can do to guard yourself against uh, improper sexual conduct. And you can guard yourself against certain sexual temptations. There are certain things that you just shouldn't place yourself in that arena because it's going to be harder, right? So be wise about that. Um, and playing off of Josiah a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy for me. Um, anything I wouldn't want my daughter to be doing with somebody before she's married. This is a little bit of a different vein, but I think we'll touch on it. To what extent should we love our enemies and what cautions should we take when it comes to loving our enemies? You want to go a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think we ought to. I mean, Jesus reigns us, you know, to love our enemies. Um, that can be misapplied and say, walk into danger, you know, and I don't think that's what, what Jesus was implying. Um, I remember being challenged actually here uh, one time when I preached on that, and someone said, really, we ought to love the terrorists who are seeking to destroy, this is shortly, well, I guess it was four or five years after 9-11, but who are trying to destroy our country. And I think the biblical mandate is yes, that doesn't mean you don't arm your army. Um, and so there's wisdom and there's love. And part of it has to do with the responsibilities of individuals versus the responsibilities of states. The responsibility of a state is to love their citizens and guard them against their enemies. The responsibility of Christian individuals is to, to love our enemies. Yeah, if you were here this morning, I preached about David and Saul. Um, David was being chased by Saul a lot, and Saul was trying to kill him all the time. And on two different occasions, Saul said to David after David had, you know, kind of toyed with him, took a part of his robe when he was sleeping, took his spear and his water another time, and uh, then called him out and said, why are you chasing me? I could have killed you, but I didn't. See, I'm not really after you. And Saul said on both occasions, My son David, you're the righteous one. I'm unrighteous. You're the sinner, sinless one. I'm sinless. I'm sinful. Please come. We'll reconcile. We'll be okay. David accepted the apology, but he didn't take the bait. He said, I forgive you. But he didn't go across the ravine and join up with Saul. Because he knew better. Because he knew Saul was a danger. He knew he was an enemy. He knew he would do him harm. So he wasn't going to be foolish about it. Um, the other thing I would say in relationship to that love and hate thing, um, this is just to make it a little bit more dicey. There's sometimes you can go overboard on loving uh, everyone such that you're loving someone, according to your definition of love, that is creating a hell for somebody else you love. Right? I don't think it's appropriate for me to love someone who might be abusing my daughter. I think it's appropriate for me to love them the way God would love them and hope that they come to repentance. 
But if that person's abusing my daughter, I'm not going to wrap my arms around them and say, I love you. I'm going to do what I can to keep that person from violating my daughter. Even if it puts my life in peril. I actually think that's an act of holy love. Okay? So love's just not cuddly. Love is righteous. Don't give love and holiness in two different compartments. It's all about righteousness. So Yeah, I like what you, I love what you just said. Love and holiness aren't separate. We we sometimes create a false dichotomy between love and justice. And love and justice, uh, you know, meet in God and we're called to both. <laughs> Let's get the band to come back up here. Um, while you guys are